the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Sorry to interrupt your, uh, your chats, but uh, I think we've kind of reached a, a moment where a lot of the movement has stopped. So uh, may I add my welcome to those you've already received. My name is Paul Cook. I'm one of the leaders here, and it's my privilege this morning uh, to be continuing our series in John, but actually to be able to say we are concluding our series in the Gospel of John. It's been wonderful. I've absolutely loved this series. We have seen, haven't we? We've been encouraged to come and see uh, about Jesus. We've heard about him being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this morning we have the conclusion to the story. So you are so welcome uh, to be with us as we do that together. Uh, For those of you who are joining us online today, I have an apology to make. Uh, I I cut away very abruptly last week when we had the baptism, so I'm sorry about that. It's lovely that you're with us as well. Lovely to have those who are in the building. Uh, We're going to be, as I say, concluding the Gospel of John and thinking about following Jesus. Um, Endings are tricky, aren't they? Uh, I always find that the most difficult part of a sermon is the, is the ending. Where are you going to land it? That's really hard, I think. Uh, and I appreciate anybody who's grappling with an ending. Um, one of the things that Sarah and I like to do in our free time is to uh, watch television dramas about policemen. We, we really enjoy that. Um, and earlier this year, we, uh, we loved the end of Endeavour. I don't know if you're Endeavour fans, but we loved the final episode of Endeavour. As endings go, it was absolutely brilliant. I don't see how it could have been done better. But not all endings to television programmes about policemen are quite as popular, are they? Uh, Some of you may have been (laughs) Line of Duty fans, um, and I don't know if you had that kind of response to the conclusion to episode six, um, or series six. I don't know, I didn't think it was that bad, but people... Some people didn't really like it, but endings are tricky. That's what it shows us, doesn't it? And do you know what? John gives us two of them. He gives us two endings. They're quite similar, but we do definitely have two endings in the Gospel of John. So uh, let's have a look at the first one, shall we? We're going to be uh, opening our, our Bibles together in John chapter 20 to start with. And if you're using the Green Church Bibles, that's page 1029. Uh, let me just pray as we, uh, as we open God's word together. So, Father, we thank you so much for this word. We thank you that it's from you and that it's about you and all that you have done with humanity. We thank you for the Gospel of John in particular, where we read about the life, about the death and about the resurrection of Jesus. And thank you for the privilege of following that gospel through over the past year. Please speak to us this morning, we pray, through your Holy Spirit, as we open this book, uh, this, this gospel, I should say, for the last time in this series. Speak to us clearly and speak to us powerfully, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. John chapter 20. Actually, before I get to, uh, get to the conclusion, we just need to remind ourselves of the build-up to the conclusion, which is what Nick was helping us with last week uh, with his, his portrait from, or his picture from Caravaggio. And Nick very helpfully last week reminded us that it's fine to have doubts. 
And when we have doubts, it's really helpful for us to share those with other people so that we can encourage one another and help one another make sense of the faith uh, of Jesus Christ. But of course, Jesus doesn't want us to stay in a position of doubt, does he? He says to Thomas uh, at the end of verse 27 there, stop doubting and believe. And that's really what the whole of the Gospel of John is about, encouraging us to get to that point of belief. And Thomas gets to that point. And in many ways, Thomas is the ideal reader of the Gospel of John because he's followed Jesus all the way through. He's had his questions, he's had his doubts, but now he just cries out in adoration and worship, my Lord and my God, which is an incredibly powerful and deep thing for Thomas to say because it takes us right back to the beginning of the gospel. If you remember, the beginning starts, it's a great, it's a, talk about endings, this is a great beginning, isn't it, the gospel of John? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh, became a human being, and made his dwelling among us. And when Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God, he's basically saying, I recognize, Jesus, who you are, who you have been from all eternity, and I worship you. And Jesus says, you know, it's great that you've come to that realization, Thomas, but even more blessed are those who have not seen me physically and yet have believed. And that's many of us here this morning. We haven't physically seen the Lord Jesus Christ, but we've come to a point where we believe in him as the saviour of the world. And as we were saying in our home group, or somebody in our home group said on Wednesday evening, isn't it great? Jesus is talking about us here. We are blessed because we have not seen, but we have believed. And then we come to the conclusion, the first of the two conclusions in John chapter 20, where John tells us the whole reason why he has written this gospel. We've used it before, but Let's remind ourselves of it. John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you, that I, that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. That's why John has written his gospel so that we might come to that point of belief and that by believing, we might have life in his name. That wonderful life that Jesus promises, that for eternity life, that life that delivers us, deliver, delivers us from hell and from death and brings us into an eternal relationship with the Lord. That's glorious, absolutely glorious. But... Uh, as we were saying last week, not everybody is in that place. And so it's important that we have the opportunity to share our questions, to uh, share our doubts with one another. And as Nick said last week, we've got our Alpha course, which is uh, especially focused on that need. So we start our Alpha course in September. We're going to be doing it twice in the autumn. We're going to be doing a kind of an Alpha light on Sunday mornings for four Sundays, I think. And then we're going to be doing full fat Alpha uh, in the Tuesday evenings with a meal. So it really is kind of full fat. Um, so if either of those are of interest to you, please do come along to our Alpha courses. 
But anyway, let's get back to the Gospel of John. Um, We're at the end of the Gospel. I'm not sure that we've spent too much time talking about the structure of the Gospel. But it is a really carefully structured piece of writing, the Gospel of John. You've basically got the the introduction that we uh, just looked at with that amazing beginning. You've got the epilogue at the end, which we're going to look at in a minute. And then you've got two really big, significant chunks of teaching uh, in the, in the centre part of the Gospel. And you can think about those in different ways, but one of the ways that I think it's helpful to think about them is that the first half of the Gospel of John has lots of acts of restoration in it. And I just want to kind of remind us of some of the ways in which we've seen Jesus restoring people and restoring situations as we've gone through this Gospel. So in chapter 2, for example... Uh, there's that social embarrassment, disaster looming, isn't there? When the, the water, the water, the wine runs out at the wedding. And Jesus restores that situation by turning the wine into the best, sorry, the water into the best wine that the taster has ever tasted. And then in uh, chapter four, we've got that woman, uh, that Samaritan woman, um, who is a compromised outsider in her own village because she's got this very checkered relationship past and nobody appears wants to actually go to the well with her to draw water. But Jesus goes to the well and he has this encounter with her and he restores her into her village life and she becomes a great witness for him in that place. And then in chapter five, we've got the man who's been paralysed For 38 years, and Jesus restores him to mobility. And in chapter 6, we've got that huge crowd, 5,000 men plus women and children who are hungry. And Jesus restores their bodies and potentially their souls through his bread, his meal, his fish, and his teaching. And then in chapter 8, That poor, terrified woman who's been taken in adultery and must have been absolutely overwhelmed with shame. No sign of the man, we notice. And what does Jesus do? He's just so gentle with her, isn't he? So caring. And he says, I'm not going to condemn you, but go and leave your life of sin. He restores her to dignity. And in chapter 9, There's a man who's been born blind and Jesus restores his sight. And then in chapter 11, Lazarus, Jesus' friend who dies, is restored to life. So many acts of restoration. I could have put some more in. I've limited it in that first half of the gospel. Wonderful to read those things. But then we get to the, the second half of the gospel and we hardly have any of those acts of restoration. Instead, in the second half, what we have is Jesus explaining what the basis of that restoration is. And there's a lot of teaching in the second half of the gospel aimed at his disciples in particular. Um, So it's sometimes called the book of of glory because it's all focused on Jesus's glorious death and resurrection. But this is the part of the gospel where Jesus shows his incredible love for his disciples and teaches them about the importance of loving one another, where he he dons the towel and he he washes their feet, where he promises them that, yes, he's going away, but he's going to send the Holy Spirit 
to be another counsellor and comforter to be with them. And of course, then he does the ultimate act of love by giving himself upon the cross, showing that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he rises from the dead three days later gloriously for them. And that is the basis of all restoration in our world. And then we get to John chapter 21. And there's a big elephant in the room of restoration in John chapter 21. Or perhaps we should better say, given where the chapter is, 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 is set, it's like the elephant on the beach. And that elephant is called Peter. And the problem uh, is, is significant with Peter. Way back at the start of the gospel, in John chapter 1, you remember, I think this is the first sermon that I preached in, in, the, in the series, Andrew, Peter's brother, bought him, uh, brought him to, to Jesus. A wonderful thing to do for anybody. And Jesus looks at him and he says, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. We'll come back to that name, Simon, son of John, in in a moment. But why does Jesus give him a new name? He gives him a new name because the name that he chooses means rock, Cephas, is Aramaic, the language that Jesus and his disciples spoke. And Peter is a Greek name. They both mean rock. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to make you the one on whose faith I'm going to build my church. You're a rock. You're solid. You're going to be a great leader. And he is. Until we get to chapter 18. And what happens in chapter 18? The rock crumbles, doesn't it? Peter just flakes away in chapter 18. And it's just a little servant girl that is the, the start of the problem. He, he's gone with Jesus to the, high, to the courtyard of the high priest when Jesus is on trial. But then a, a servant girl, socially speaking, somebody of no significance in that culture who comes up to him and says, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? And he says, oh, no, 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 not me, I'm not. And then somebody else comes up to him and asks him the same question. No, no, I'm not. And then a third time, he denies his Lord, doesn't he? The rock has completely crumbled away. And so we need one last act of restoration in this lovely gospel. And that's what we're going to find in chapter 21. Uh, Oops, sorry. Let's, uh, Let's read it together, shall we? Chapter 21. So we're back up in the north of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee in chapter 21. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, where the water had been turned into wine. The sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon and Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. Because that's what they did before Jesus had called them to be his disciples. They were fishermen, so they're going back 
to their family businesses. And so they went out and they got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, who I personally believe is John, the author of the fourth gospel, said to Peter, it's the Lord. John's the one with the spiritual insight. It's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, here's Peter, the man of action, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water like the leader that he is. And the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 metres. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread Shades of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. That's heavy, isn't it? No, one, one large fish is heavy, 153 of them. He's a man of action, Peter is. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. What a fantastic invitation. Come and have breakfast, says Jesus. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, and here's this name again. We've not heard it since John chapter 1 and verse 42. We've seen Peter lots, but he's never called him this before. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Three denials, three questions. It's painful for Peter. He said, Lord, You know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Uh, 30 years after this conversation, Peter was crucified in Rome. Tradition has it 
that he didn't want to be crucified the same way his Lord was crucified, so he asked to be crucified upside down, which is why in this second Caravaggio painting this morning, you've got those strange angles. So that's the, that's the cost of the restoration to Peter. But it's going to glorify God, Jesus says, this, uh, this death. And then he said to him, follow me. A final act of restoration. Well, I think we all need restoration, don't we? I know I do. I know this week I have done things. Even this morning I've said something. And I've definitely thought things this week that are not right for me as a follower of Jesus. And I need to be restored this morning. Which is why I'm so grateful that we have bread and wine this morning. Which is a symbol of our restoration in the Lord Jesus Christ. We all need restoration. But the things that we'll need restoring from will be different according to our personal circumstances. We won't all have what Peter had on his mind, but we will all have things on our minds. And I just want to draw out to finish with some some principles for restoration, which I think we can take from Peter's restoration. Uh, So here they are. Here's the first one. We need to repent And you might say to me, well, Paul, where's the repentance in this chapter? And I'd have to say I can't see any, to be honest with you, not directly. But I think it's because we've already had the repentance in Peter's case. If you remember, after he's denied his Lord three times, in the Gospel of Luke, we're told that he went outside and he wept bitterly. Not just remorse, I don't think, but repentance. He knew that he had let his Lord down. And he was so, so sorry for what he'd done. And we, in the first stage of our restoration, need to repent of our sins. And we need to say, Lord, we are so sorry for the things we've thought, the things we've done, the things we've said, the things we failed to to say and to think and to do that we should have done. We are so sorry for those things. And on repentance, we can build. And Jesus encourages Peter to remember. That's why I labored the point about his name so much. Because when Jesus calls him for the first time since chapter one, Simon, son of John, he's taking him back to the very moment of his calling. And he's saying to him, I know you've messed up, Peter, but remember how I called you in the first place. Remember how you felt then. Remember what I saw in you then and know that I still see those things in you today. And maybe we need to remember. Maybe we need to remember how we first felt, if we are already followers of Jesus, how we first felt when we came to faith. Maybe we've got damaged relationships and we need to remember how those relationships used to be. But remembering can be a really helpful part of restoration, I think. And then we've got reflection. Three times Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? And I don't think that he's just trying to, well, I know he's not, trying to humiliate Peter in front of 
the people that he's with. I think he just really wants to press in to this priority that Peter let go in chapter 18. And so he's saying, do you love me? It can be a bit too easy for us sometimes, can't it, to think, oh, Jesus has died for me. I have the cross for forgiveness. Off I merrily skip. But grace is free, but it is never cheap. It is bought at a cost, at an incredibly expensive price. And so Jesus asked us to reflect this morning, do you love me? Do I really love Jesus? Reflection is important. But then there's reaffirmation. Three questions, but that's also three opportunities for Peter to say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And sometimes it helps us, doesn't it, to say out loud what we believe, to declare it in front of others. And Peter is being restored, not just in his own soul, but in front of everybody else, those six other disciples who are having breakfast with him. They get to hear him say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He's being reaffirmed in his position amongst them, as well as reaffirming his own faith. And then we have the lovely moment when Jesus gives him his commission. And and Peter has to receive it, doesn't he? Sometimes we can be so bowed down with our sense of guilt and shame that we feel, oh, I can't do it, Jesus. I, I can't serve you in that way. I can't I can't do that for you because I'm not worthy. But Jesus says, you are worthy because I have made you worthy. I have forgiven you and I have restored you and I have made you righteous in the Father's sight. So receive what I give you. And for Peter, that was the pastoral charge of tending to the lambs and feeding the sheep. But whatever we might be called to receive. Let's receive it in faith this morning because Jesus has done all that is necessary to buy our redemption. And finally, Jesus says, right, come on then, let's do it. Follow me, he says. Recommit, recommit to the life of discipleship that Jesus calls us to. What a glorious A couple of words those are. Okay. I hope some of that will be useful for us this morning. But let me finish the passage now. And as we do that, we're actually turning our attention from Peter towards John himself. Peter turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. I believe that's John the evangelist. Uh, following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. And because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that the disciple would not die. Can you imagine that? A rumor starting in a church. (laughs) But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? 
This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. And here's Peter's, sorry, here's John's second conclusion. Jesus did many other things as well. And if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room enough for the books that would be written. And of course, it's an echo of the first conclusion, isn't it? Yes, Umpteen things could have been written about Jesus, but these are written that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. That's where John finishes. So, how about us at the end of our series? It's been a long one. I think it's been a brilliant one. I wonder how you've been impacted in this series of, uh, of John's Gospel. I wonder if it might have been your home group discussions, if you're in a home group. If you're not in a home group, you might like to think about joining one in September. It's so helpful to unpack these things in our home groups. Maybe uh, it's been in your prayer times, individually or together, as you've prayed through the challenges of the Gospel. Maybe you've actually personally made some changes in your life. Uh, uh, your life's not going to be the same again. Maybe for the first time today, you need to put your trust in Jesus and your life will never, ever be the same again if that's the case. Or maybe it's been something that you've heard. It's been quite a visual series as well with various props and things, hasn't it? Maybe one of those will stick in your mind for years to come. I don't know how you've been impacted. The thing that probably is going to stick with me the most, all of those have been important for me, but the thing I will really remember is something that Nick shared in the very first uh, uh, service that we had around the Gospel of John. And he he gave us this quotation from Augustine of Hippo. Um, We've got a big thing about elephants this morning. Um, Hippo is a place rather than an animal on this occasion. Uh, a, um, A great Christian thinker from the fourth century in North Africa. And he said this, John's Gospel is deep enough for an elephant to swim in and shallow enough for a child to not drown. And I love that quotation when I heard it for the first time. And I don't know what you think you are this morning, whether you feel like you're, I won't say like an elephant, but like you feel like you're sort of swimming mightily through the incredible richness and depth of John's gospel, or whether you, you're just kind of putting your toes into the shallows for the first time. I believe there's something here for absolutely everybody in this room as God speaks to us through his word. But let's remember that these things are written, that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. Amen.